Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians 4, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 in particular this morning. We're kind of doing a little bit of a hiatus. We did summer in the Psalms. We're going to get back to John and Exodus, a Lord willing, next week. And for a few weeks, we've been looking at a distinctly Christian life. What does it look like? What are some aspects of living a distinctly Christian life? We've noticed that we live distinctly uh, in our sexuality. This morning, we're looking at uh, our distinct living regarding brotherly love in our work, kind of our lifestyle. And then this evening, we'll look at our death ethic, how it differs from those who don't believe. So before we read uh, the passage and take a look at it, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We have it in so many different translations that we can read. It's accessible to us. And now as we spend time just meditating on it, we thank you for the space to do it. That we can do this in peace without fear of persecution. That we can uh, just spend time meditating on it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in each of our hearts. You know what we need. Before you, we are laid completely bare. And so fill us up where we are empty. Humble us where we are proud. Encourage us and lift us up where we are despairing. And save us where we are lost. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, we'll begin reading just at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning and listening, I want to highlight uh, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, just for a moment here. This is the thrust of what Paul's getting at, the way Christians love, the way we work, the way we mind our own affairs and are dependent on no one, has to do with how outsiders perceive us, and it, it matters for our witness in the world. It's one of the ways we live distinctly is in our work and in our love, and Paul's drawing our attention to that. There were apparently uh, some among the Thessalonians who thought that the second coming of Christ was so near that the best thing they could do was quit their jobs, divest their investments, all liquidate their assets, and just kind of live day by day, uh, 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 waiting for the coming of Jesus any minute now, like it's going to happen tomorrow, Monday, or it's going to happen uh, this week, Tuesday. And they were kind of becoming fanatical. They were not living uh, what you might call an ordinary, boring, sort of faithful Christian life. And they're new Christians. They're about six-month believers now since Paul was there planting the church. And so they've got a lot to learn. But he said, look, you guys need to settle down, as it were. You need to get into your routine. You need to just keep loving each other. And here's how you need to conduct your lifestyle. He's given them some very practical information. I remember this sounded so ethereal to me and so weird to me. But I remember talking to uh, uh, Paul Murphy. He, I think he's still the pastor of Messiah's Reform Fellowship in New York City. And he said that evangelical Christians in the 1970s and 80s in New York received actually a horrible reputation regarding work. 
because a lot of them were using work to evangelize, to spread the gospel. So they were on the clock getting paid their salary and hourly wage, but they weren't being productive. They were just evangelizing and not producing for their employer. And so they had to come to grips with the fact that Jesus didn't come, obviously, and they need to, as believers, work, be diligent in their work, and that is part of being a faithful Christian witness. And if you want to evangelize, great, find time other than your boss's time when they're paying you to work to do that work. And so this is really practical life advice that Paul's giving us, and it encourages us to live the Christian life in distinction from the world. I want us to notice just six things briefly here. Love the brothers is part of a distinctly Christian life. Living quietly is part of being our good witness, minding our own business, working with our hands, being a good witness, and then being dependent on no one. We're going to cover those six things. So first, love the brothers. Take a look at verses 9 to 10 with me if you would. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. The word brotherly, the word love here is the word Philadelphia. From Philadelphia, we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's love of someone from the same womb. Love of that way. Love, love of someone who has a lot in common with you. And this probably sounds a little bit weird because the Christians in Thessalonica and the Christians in Pella are not all from the same womb, right? <laughs> we have different mothers, different fathers, etc. But it is the case that we are all, though, siblings and that we are all from the same womb in one sense, the same spiritual womb. The Holy Spirit has given new birth to each of us here. And so this brotherly love had to do with loving other believers. And in Thessalonica, that was quite an incredible thing they were doing. They weren't just loving each other, but if you had visited Thessalonica from the outside, you had already caught wind of how loving these people were. Their reputation had proceeded, had, had gone all throughout Macedonia. So Paul says, look, we already know how incredibly loving you guys are. This church in Thessalonica is so reputable in that way that we've all heard of it. It's incredible what the Lord had done in their lives and how they were responding to the gospel by their love for one another. And Paul said, okay, that's great. In the first six months, you guys have done incredible. Do this more and more. Did you catch that? We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. As in don't stop. Don't rest contented with what you're doing. Continue to think about how can I love my fellow believers even better? Where can I grow? What do they need that I can supply? Uh, where can I be a greater encouragement to them? Where can I be more spiritual help to them? How can I serve them better? He says they've already been taught by God regarding that. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's already taught them to love. They know how to love. He's just concerned that they continue to do that more and more. And the love is so important, beloved, in the life of the Christian. Can't emphasize this enough. If, if you ask Jesus to summarize the entire Old Testament, what word did he use to summarize it? Love. Love God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And John goes so far as to say, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. In other words, love is the test, really. It tells us whether or not we are believers. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. As in, if we love God, if we know God, if God has saved us, then we will love 
our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Tertullian's Apology, chapter 39, paragraph 7, wrote this, describing how outsiders viewed the Christians of his day, circa 200 AD. Look, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves hate one another, speaking of the, the pagans, and how they are ready to die for each other, for they themselves, the pagans, are readier to kill each other. They just marveled, these outsiders, at how these Christians loved one another. So, beloved, I, let me just say this carefully. Jesus gives this as the model of, of whether how people will know us. They'll know you by your love. Christians are not known, and Jesus did not send us out into the world to be known by how we vote. We are not known by some doctrinal idiosyncrasies we can impress others with. The mark that Jesus sends out in the world with that tells the world that we belong to him is love. And Paul says, you guys are doing it well, continue to do it more and more. And it's a message that reverberated all the way down to us today, sitting here in Pella. How can we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ better? That's a question we all do well to answer and to live out. The second way we can walk properly before outsiders, first, continue to love fellow believers. Secondly, live quietly, verse 11, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. I want to highlight just that living quietly. So to aspire is simply uh, to, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. To aspire actually modifies all three of those. So he's saying to aspire to live quietly, to aspire to mind your own affairs, and to aspire to work with your hands. And the word to aspire has to do with having as one's ambition or considering an honor to do those things. So he's talking to them about their motivations, etc. And then he says to live quietly. To live quietly is just this. Let me give you a basic definition. To relax from normal activity or rest. To live a quiet life or refrain from disturbing activity. To refrain from saying something. So the word connotes a calm demeanor, peaceableness, sort of a peacemaker, tranquil, along with a lifestyle that is not publicly disruptive. Now, there are some believers who are always in the public eye, but not for good reasons. And Paul would say, you, you got to learn to live quietly. Don't make an issue of yourself. Don't be an obnoxious, publicly obnoxious Christian. Uh, Guido de Bray, it always struck me the letter he wrote to uh, King Philip II of Spain. It was appended to the Belgic Confession. And he had been underground with his church quite a while. And they were trying to avoid persecution. And they were being mistreated. Many of them were being killed for the faith. And he wanted to put Christians in the proper light so that the word of the accusers of Christians was not the only word that the king heard. And he wrote this uh, to the king. This is just a model of a quiet life. Those who hold office and pass sentence and judgment and legal proceedings would be good witnesses that they have never observed anything in us Christians that leaned towards disobedience. Nor did they discover in us the resolve in any way to militate against your majesty, nor did they find anything that would disturb the common peace. Rather, they found that in our communal assemblies, we pray for the kings and princes of the earth, and in particular for you, O most gracious Lord, and for those whom you have authorized in the regime and ruling offices of the regions and countries of your domain. 
For we have been taught not only by God's word, but also through the constant instruction of our preachers that the kings, princes, and authorities are appointed by the ordinance of God. Romans 13. Besides, we have been taught that he who resists the magistrates resists the ordinance of God and will receive damnation. We acknowledge and maintain that by the eternal wisdom of God, the kings rule and the princes determine justice. Briefly stated, just a few more sentences. We believe that they have their office not through injustice or despotism, but by God's own appointment. In order to demonstrate this, that this is not merely the word of our lips, but that it is a conviction most deeply impressed and imprinted upon our hearts, we ask, who has ever been found among us who has refused you, most gracious Lord, the tribute or tax required of him? On the contrary, obedience to pay was as quickly granted as the command was given. What cachet of weapons, what conspiracy was ever uncovered, even when we had been subjected to such cruel pains and torment by those who have clothed themselves in your name and power to commit every cruelty against us. Well, that's quite profound. Now, I know we live in a country that was founded on what? The overthrowing of the reign of a king. We, want, we don't want taxation without representation. And just embedded in the warp and woof of our country, and it's embedded in each of us, I'm guessing, to, to the extent we probably don't even realize, at least it is for me, just how easy it is to become a publicly obnoxious Christian. And to say, well, we've got rights to defend. I think there's going to come a time for each of us, it's probably here in some small measure, where we're going to have to figure out, are we here to build uh, Kingdom America with the president as our king? Are we healed? here to build kingdom heaven with Jesus as our king. And what it comes down to is, are we going to live distinctly Christian, quiet lives? Not just in the civil realm, but in all of our realm, even at work. Are we going to live quiet lives filled with godliness and integrity? Or are we going to walk around as publicly obnoxious Christians, always justifying our obnoxiousness, of course? Third way we can walk worthy before outsiders is minding our own business. So verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. So that minding your own affairs, this is about as straightforward as it gets, uh, beloved. First Peter 4.15 says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Similar language. One who meddles in things that don't concern that person, a busybody. Second Thessalonians, Paul follows up, follows up with the Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 11, and says, We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. And that language is to be intrusively busy, a busybody, a meddler. Or to use the language of verse 11, not minding your own affairs, but minding everybody else's affairs. We would probably describe it using one word, nosy. I don't know where that came from, but sticking our nose in everything. Paul says don't live like that. Immensely practical. An example of what it means to be nosy we could go on and on, but if we're more concerned with the sins of other people than with our own sins, that can be an example of nosiness. Really glad to hear a bad report. Love it when we can stick our nose in some sort of drama in somebody else's life, just not, not so we can pray for them and help them, but of course, just to spread it to everybody else so we feel better about ourselves. Nosiness, not minding our own affairs. When we're more concerned with someone else's children or marriage than we are our own children or marriage, again, we are incredible parents and incredible spouses when it comes to everybody else, but not so good when it comes to our own. An example of just not minding our own affairs, being nosy. 
Those of us who are more concerned, if we're more concerned with managing the latest goings on in the lives of other people than with managing our own lives. Again, just nosiness in general, I probably don't have to say any more on it. Paul says, look, you want to walk worthy before outsiders. Don't be nosy. Don't be a nosy Christian. Mind your own affairs. Manage your own life. Take care of your own life. Help other people when they need it. But let's not be nosing around in other people's lives, uh, sticking our nose where it doesn't belong, uh, all in the name of trying to help when we're really just trying to do something else destructive. Uh, another way that we can walk worthy before outsiders and properly before them is to work with our own hands. Verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands. Now, in our day, post-Reformation, post-vocatio taught by Luther, where every calling has equal glory and we get that. When Paul said this in his day, that wasn't how they would have heard it. If you're going to work with your own hands, who were the people that worked with their own hands largely? Slave labor. Those are the people that did it. When Paul went and was a tent maker, now that was a, a bit of a trade, arguably, but he was doing some pretty humble work, arguably. So when he's telling them to work with their own hands, he's really saying this, I want you to view all labor, all tasks, not as menial, but unto the Lord. And every bit of work that you can do is done for the glory of God, done using your talents, done working well, is good work. So just live a quiet life and just work with your hands. If the job is lowly, just do it. If you're a slave, do it. If you're a ditch digger, just do your ditch digging work. If you're the lowest person on the totem pole, take great peace in the work that you are doing. Our Lord Jesus Christ labored what? As a carpenter. Again, lowly work. Nothing impressive, not a politician, not somebody in charge, not a religious leader, just working as a carpenter before he entered into public ministry at his baptism. And it shouldn't surprise us because that's the attitude he came into this world with, Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? Just a humble mindedness. If our Savior came from glory, surrounded by the praise and the worship Day and night, that's fascinating, beloved. Day and night, the cherubim, the seraphim, all of heaven is praising you. You leave that in some sense. Take on flesh, come down into this world, and to come as a servant. Taking on flesh would have been enough, but then to come as a servant, but not just any servant, to go all the way to death, but not just any death, all the way to the death of the cross, that shameful, despicable death just so that worthless people like you and me could be saved, just so that rebels could receive eternal life, if that was the attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it was, and it is, and that's how we are saved, then what kind of people would we think that would produce? People who have no problem doing even the most menial of tasks that the world may pass on by, and we do it unto the Lord with great joy in our hearts, knowing we're working for a different kingdom. And that this world that we live in is not all there is. So, beloved, think about that when we think, hey, what has the Lord called me to? What should I be doing? Maybe it's to a small task until the day we die. And that's good and right. And there is nothing wrong with that. In the world, everything's the climbing of the corporate ladder. Again, nothing wrong with that. Climb the corporate ladder. But in the world, bigger is better. What Paul's saying is, look, you want to walk properly before outsiders? Let them see somebody who can do the most menial tasks with joy 
Let them see it. Let them watch this. Let them watch somebody do a task that the world says is worthless in an entry-level job. Let them see you do that with joy. And they'll see something fascinating. The world, they just can't wrap their minds around. You'll walk properly before them. And to work with your own hands is just part of life. Sometimes as Christians, we might forget that. I don't think that's the case in Pella. I'm mindful where we are, that we're in Pella, which is a community which generally historically prizes workaholism. And if you work 40 hours a week in Pella, you are borderline lazy. Let's just get that out here. 45 hours a week, about 50 hours a week, that's about the norm. Again, nothing wrong with that, not at all. You take 50 hours a week down to Springfield, you're a workaholic, where <laughs> Rochelle and I were in Missouri. Different geographical things. Uh, sins sometimes follow a geography. So here in Pella, we're told work with our hands. We're thinking, awesome, I already got that one down, and that's good. But don't hear Paul saying, hey, go out and work yourself into an early grave and neglect other priorities, like your family. Don't go out into the world and try and build your earthly kingdom. He's not saying that. What he's saying is just work. Work with your hands and be content with the work that you're doing. In fact, he goes so far in this that in his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. <laughs> How do you like that one? <laughs> so a Christian who's all concerned about the second coming of Christ and wants to live off the charity of other Christians. And by the way, Christians are known for being charitable. So if you want to be lazy, you can come into the church and probably get some handouts from other people because they love and care for you. And you can make up tons of excuses about why you can't work when in reality you can. Paul says if there's people in the church like that, let them starve. Their stomach will force them to go job hunting. Don't feed them. Make them work. Richard Phillips in his book, Mask of the Mandate. Well, this is written just to guys, but it applies to guys and gals across the board. Nobody respects a man who doesn't work. It's just as simple as that. It's okay for a man to be dumb or ugly or even a little unpleasant, so long as he works hard. But nothing is worse than a guy who won't work. Consider the scorn the Apostle Paul heaps upon a lazy man. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Christianity does not say, well, if he won't work, we'll just give him what he needs. No, Paul says, let him starve until he starts working. Why is this? Because men are made by God to work. Men have a duty. Christians have a duty to work. Men like to work. They feel really good when they work hard. The life of a man is a life of work. This is good and it pleases God. Notice if someone isn't willing to work, that's what Paul says. He's not saying, look, you've had a stroke. You've got circumstances that are legitimate. You can't work. He's not saying, well, look, that person starved. Not at all. Not even close. Now, we're charitable. That, that's why we as Christians work, so we can help those who have a need. But he's saying if there's somebody who just will not, they don't want to work and they won't do it, then just let them starve. That's how important it is for us to work with our own hands. And that is a good model of walking properly before outsiders. Because if we're living on the charity of outsiders or the charity of people in the church when we don't have to, nobody's going to listen to our message. They're going to say, see, these Christians are just a bunch of fakes, a bunch of frauds. Two more things. Why are we doing these things? So that we can walk properly before outsiders. So the word having to do with uh, walking properly is decently or becomingly or appropriately or correctly. It pertains to being appropriate for public display or presentable. So Paul's getting really practical here, isn't he? Saying, look, if you're a Christian, your life just has to be presentable to the outside world. 
And one of the ways it's presentable is if we're loving other believers well, we're minding our own affairs, we're just working with our own hands, we're living a quiet life that's presentable to the world. Something opposite that is not presentable to the world. And so he's saying, we have a duty as Christians to walk in such a way that the world can look at us and say, yeah, those are some interesting people. There's nothing really crazily out of whack about their life. They're just quietly serving their God. They love each other well. They do any work. It doesn't matter where you put them. Put them in the lowest job, the, put them as president. It doesn't matter where you put them. They just faithfully plod away and serve. Fascinating. Who is their God? These people are different and interesting. So let me put it this way before we look at our last one. There's no more negative witness to the watching world than fighting unloving Christians who are publicly obnoxious, poking their nose around in everyone else's business rather than minding their own affairs and working hard and being productive. The world rightly sees that as someone whose life is way out of whack because we all have some of the image of God residing in us, even as twisted and perverted and out of whack as it may be. Even non-Christians can see that that's not what we're created for. And so Paul calls us to a life of holiness in these ways. And then one more thing, being dependent upon no one. That's part of walking properly before outsiders. Now again, in the Thessalonian world, people were selling everything they had, not getting jobs, the school, school evangelized. Paul's saying, nope, work so you can be dependent on no one. Because people would come into the church and they would say, hey, these people will support us. They're Christians. They're commanded to love. People down to this very day are doing it. I remember in Springfield, I got a phone call from a lady and she said, hey, I need help with my medicine. I need you to take me to the pharmacist to get my medicine because I don't have a car and I need you to pay for it because I don't have money. And I said, I can't right now. And boy, she laid in and the guilt trip came and it worked. It worked really well. Aren't you Christians supposed to love? Aren't you supposed to take care of other people? I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, you're supposed to take care of me, you're required to take care of me. And click, she was exactly right. Maybe not the greatest method, but she was right. We're called to love one another. Beloved, what she was doing was not the way that this is supposed to work. If she can and she could, turns out, she could actually work and be dependent on no one. What she was doing is what a lot of people do. They come into the church and they try and be dependent on the goodwill and charity of Christians. And Paul says, I want you believers to live in such a way that you're not dependent on the charity of other people. You're not dependent on the world around you if you don't have to be. Love each other well, take care of each other well, and just go to work, pay your own bills, put food on your own plate. This is very practical, beloved, very easy stuff to wrap our minds around. Difficult to live out, but by the Holy Spirit working in us, we can indeed live that out. And I want to, I know in the Reformed faith, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, a lot of doctrinal truths, which are wonderful. But I hope we can see that as we have walked through this passage, even this morning, that Christianity is intensely practical, meaning God walks into details of our life. We might want to say to him, hands off. And he says, oh, no. How you spend your spare time, how you mind your own affairs, how you work, that's my business, our God says to us. And we see that clearly 
in the redemption God's provided us to. When Jesus Christ came into this world, he was not some floating spirit of doctrinal truth out there somewhere. He was a living, breathing human being that you could examine and you could look at him and you could say, is this guy obeying every commandment or not? Is he pulling this off, yes or no? Is he down here to obey or is he down here to play games? What's he about? Are his miracles real? Does he really love people like he's calling us to love? Is this guy for real or not? And he goes all the way to the cross. You think at some point, if he's not real, he's going to eject. He's going to get out of this. Surely the salvation God provides is not this practical, this close in your face, this real in life. And what everybody discovered when Jesus was hanging on the cross is God saves in real living color by sending into this world his eternally begotten son, taking on flesh in a real person. And you can really verify it, really see this, and really marvel at it. Beloved, he did this so that we could be saved. He had to take on skin so our skin could be saved, as it were. He had to become fully human. And now when God, after he's done that to save you and me, he went through the worst. He went through hell itself so you and I would never have to go there. But now he's brought us into a kingdom and he says, you guys go out in the world and be real people. Don't go out in the world and fake this. Don't go out in the world and abuse the charity of other people. Don't go out in the world and be obnoxious. Go out into the world and be real people who have a real relationship with me and be presentable people as you live before a watching world. Let's pray.